Morning, New Hope. So glad that you're here. If you're new, welcome. Really glad that you chose to be part of this this morning. I'm going to ask you to go to Numbers chapter 27, and we'll get into that in just a minute if you have a Bible with you. If not, the verses you'll see up on the screen. And um, we'll remind you that there's Bibles in the seats around you, so you can pull out a hard copy if you'd rather do that. Hold a hard copy of the Bible in your hand. Um, a couple things to pray about, and fairly significant things. A lot going on, as you can imagine. It feels like there's electricity in the air because school is back in session, right? Um, some of us are very glad electricity is back in our house right now. I, I got, Lori and I got power back last night at 10 o'clock. It was great. Showers are wonderful. You know, things like that are good. I'm sorry if you don't have electricity yet. I don't mean to gloat. Um, we know what it is to go through a storm, though, and uh, we enc encountered that, but we haven't encountered anything on the scale of what our friends went through in Maui, have we? Um, what they en endured, um, huge magnitude is just indescribable. And I wanted you to know that the church uh, this last week was able to send some money to um, another church in Maui that we uh, were aware of. Yeah. Um, some of you, perhaps if you have a background from Trinity Church on the south end of Lansing, remember Sharina Husted, and Sharina's dad and her brother uh, are pastors at a church in Maui, and uh, Grace Bible Church, and so we have a missions fund, and when you give money to the church here, automatically 10% of what you give goes directly to our missions work around the world. Some of them are local here, and some of them are international, and then we reserve some of it for helping in uh, disaster situations. And so in this particular case, we sent $5,000 to them to help them buy food, because Sharina sent a note saying that they'd fed like 238 families, and they're doing that on a daily basis. But she said there's well over 500 families that are connected to their church that just don't have food and water. So we did what we could. If you would like to participate in that, there's cards out in the atrium after the service, and you can get uh, the cards that say Grace Bible Church on it if you want to give directly, or just send them a note of encouragement. Let them know that you're praying for them. So we want to pray for that this morning. And also, I wanted to remind you about these Spartan starter kits that have been put together by you. Great job, everybody. There's over 200 of these that have been put together to give out to students coming on to campus. Yeah, fantastic. So. Um, this initiative has been uh, driven by a greenhouse here, and uh, Stepping Stones Foundation helped to kind of organize things. And you guys put together these kits, and I looked through them, and I saw Chick-fil-A cards in here, and I was really tempted to pull one out, but I didn't, so it's still in there. Um, but well done. I mean, a lot, of, a lot of good things in there for students, and if you're a student and you didn't get one of those or you'd like to receive one, let us know. We'll put them in your hand. But I, I think Greenhouse, our college ministry here, has already started distributing those. So we definitely want to pray around that, that God's connecting students here to the church. And at the same time, women's ministry starts up here in a couple weeks, and men's ministry starts up, and youth ministry's ongoing, and Kyle's got a lot of work ahead of him on high school and junior high campuses. So there's so much to be praying about. Not to mention the fact that I'm going to take you into Numbers 27 in a very unique way. We're going to pray together about those things and about what I'm about to tell you right now. And you are going to be convinced that I need a mental exam after this, but just bear with me. It's going to feel a little schizophrenic this morning because I'm going to take you at this from three different angles. 
totally breaking the rules of what they teach you in Bible college, but I'm going to bring you three different tracks and you're going to see how they all tie together at the end, a beautiful bow tie. Here's how it starts and then we're going to pray. Matthew chapter 11. Jesus is talking with individuals who are questioning His authority. They begin challenging Him and asking about His identity. He talks about that, and then He begins talking about John, John the Baptist. John the Baptizer is still alive at that time, and Jesus says, I tell you the truth, there is no one born among women who is greater than John. Now he says that in light of Elijah and Noah and Moses and Rachel and all those individuals you can think of from the Old Testament. John is an Old Testament saint living in New Testament times because Jesus hasn't gone to the cross yet, therefore the New Testament era hasn't technically begun. So John's an Old Testament saint, a prophet. John the baptizer speaks powerfully of Jesus. And Jesus says, there's no one who's been born among women who's greater than John. Now, He's not talking about being a greater leader or a greater cook or a greater businessman or a greater teacher. He's talking about greater for a very specific reason because John is this close to Jesus. He's the rare prophet who's had the privilege of being there alive at the time of Jesus, gets to speak of the Lamb of God and gets to say to the world, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away sin and points at Jesus and knows He has the Son of God in His midst. That's why He's greater, greater than because of the privilege that He has. But then Jesus goes on to say, but I tell you the truth, the least in the kingdom is greater than John. I don't know where you view yourself this morning in relation to God. Maybe you've got so many failures you think God doesn't even notice you. Jesus says because you live on this side of the cross, because you have all of the information and you can assemble the pieces of the puzzle, not because you're a greater cook or because you're a greater teacher or a greater leader or a greater parent, Jesus says you are greater than John because of what you have available to you. We're going to link that together with Numbers 27 in just a moment. Let's pray first. Father, so much is on our heart right now from disasters halfway around the world to the work that You're doing right here in our own backyard. And none of it catches You by surprise because You are sovereign. So we come before you as your people, willingly, obediently, yielding to you and asking that you would accomplish your purposes. Father, I pray that you would put your hand of blessing on these starter kits for the Spartans, that you would use them to draw people to yourself. Certainly, Father, meeting material needs, but we ask that you would use it to meet a spiritual need and that you would equip individuals, that you would draw them into relationship, that, Father, you would be at work through the work of Greenhouse through the work of all the campus ministries for that fact, Father. So we lift up to you what Kyle's doing on junior high and high school campuses and what the women's ministry, what you'll do through Laura Lee and, and that group, Father, as they continue to grow in their knowledge of you. And we pray for the men's ministry, God, lifting it up and asking that you would bless it. Equip us, Father. And certainly, Father, we ask that you would bless the children's ministry here. 
in all the things that are going on, God. We bring it before you and ask that you would use us to advance the kingdom. But now we especially ask, Father, that you would help us to understand and know better who we are before you, that you would use what was written thousands of years ago in the book of Numbers to help us see how we're supposed to respond to you and how we should affect the lives of others and speak into their lives. Father, use this time to equip us, prepare our hearts. We ask for this in Jesus' matchless name and all God's people said, amen. Okay, I, I gave you the first schizophrenic track, if you will. I, I took you down the trail with Jesus declaring that you're greater. Here's the second one. I want to take you to Matthew 17. If you're not familiar with church, if you're new to church or maybe new to the Bible, th there's a time when it's a transitional moment when Jesus is here and He takes a couple of His disciples, Peter, James, and John, up onto a mountain. The Bible calls it a high mountain. And there's what's called a transfiguration that takes place. Let me take you to Matthew 17 and show you this. Absolutely one of the defining moments in the Bible. Verse 1, Jesus took with Him Peter and James and John, His brother, and led, him up, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and He was transfigured before them. And His face shone like the sun, and His garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with Him. A Greek word that's in your notes this morning, very simple, it's the only word in your notes this morning, it's a foreign word, metamorpho, metamor I want to say metamorphosis, metamorpho, you try it, metamorpho, it means exactly what you think it means, transfigured in the sense that He changed in His appearance, except the Greek language indicates that what's coming out of Him is literally coming out of Him. We're told that when Moses encountered God on Mount Sinai, He reflected the glory of God. This is actually the glory of God coming out of God the Son. It's emanating from Him. And so we're told He's transfigured before their eyes. In other words, He begins to glow a brilliant white. And then this in verse 5. A bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. Wouldn't you love to know what in the world they were talking about? Moses, Elijah, Jesus. And we're told they're in discussions. And Peter, James, and John, the Bible seems to indicate some kind of a faint happens here. In, in other words, they did a face plant and their face went into the dirt. Whether or not they fainted, passed out, I don't know, but they're absolutely terrified by what they're seeing because the law and the prophets, the law, Moses, and the prophets, Elijah, come together and they're standing with grace incarnate. Arguably, two of the greatest Old Testament heroes are standing there and they appear with Jesus. They've been seen in heaven, they've seen the glory of heaven, and now they're back on earth and they get to personally interact with Jesus. And Jesus is brilliantly, dazzlingly white in this glowing appearance. 
John writes that he's brighter than any launderer could ever possibly make your clothing. Peter, James, and John, they get to hear the conversation, and then God arrives on the scene, and then God begins to speak. I'd love to know what's going on there. Well, fortunately, Dr. Luke does record the conversation, and this is what he tells us. It says this in chapter 9, Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure. Now, hold that thought for just a moment as we go forward. That Moses is one of the two appearing with Jesus is not coincidence. There's no flukes with God. Things don't accidentally happen. This is not a coincidence. There's no chance with God. If you understand even the most basics about a sovereign God, you know that chance is not a thing. Everything is preordained. So we really want to understand what's going on here because the last time that you and I saw Moses, we were told that because of his sin against God, he personally, he personally will not be leading the people into the promised land. But that was way, 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 way back in the book of Numbers. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, an ancient, ancient book. And yet, here's Moses in the New Testament. What in the world is he doing in the New Testament? And of all places, on a mountainside, just six months before the crucifixion. Well, one particular passage in the New Testament helps us to understand to some degree. It comes from John 1, verse 17. It says, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. That clears it up, right? Now you understand? Well, maybe not. Perhaps you don't yet, and you need to put the pieces together. Let me ask it this way. If you had a choice between living under the law or living under grace, what do you choose? Absolutely. Nine o'clock service said the same thing. And I'm convinced that Elijah and Moses would be right there with you. What? You mean grace is available? We don't have to follow all the rules of the law that was put together? Everybody is going to choose grace every time. So I can say pretty confidently Moses and Elijah would be right there with you because all the law does is it exposes sin. It reveals the holiness of God but it exposes the sin of individuals. See, the law can't save you. So with that thought, let's dive into Numbers 27 and see what this is revealing for us because last week, Moses, the lawgiver, that one defied God. And he's informed as a result of defying God, he's going to suffer the exact same consequences as the first generation. Moses, you're going to die. You're going to die before you step into the promised land. You're never going to get to see the promised land. That's exactly what God revealed to him. But that punishment didn't mean he was eternally out. It meant that he suffered an earthly consequence. Go with me to verse 12, chapter 27, book of Numbers. Then the Lord said to Moses, go up to this mountain of Abram and see the land which I have given to the sons of Israel. When you have seen it, you too will be gathered to your people, as Aaron your brother was. For in the wilderness of Zin, during the strife of the congregation, you rebelled against my command to treat me as holy before their eyes at the water. So here's the timeline if you're not familiar with the story. Moses has a sister. Her name is Miriam. She has died just months before. He has a brother. His name is Aaron. 
He's died just months before. He was the high priest. Each of them are from the first generation. They don't get to go into the promised land either. So Miriam has died, Aaron has died, and now Moses is told, your time has come, Moses. You're going to be gathered to your people. And he's going to join Noah and Abraham and Joseph and Rachel and Sarah and Jacob and Isaac. All those who have gone before him who have died, he's going to join them. But first, he has to travel to this mountainous region northwest of where he's currently at in a realm called Moab, where the Moabites live. And that's where the mountains of Abiram are at. In the mountains of Abiram, there's one particular mountain, according to Deuteronomy 32, it's called Mount Nebo, very high mountain. Moses has got to climb that mountain. And from that position, he's going to be able to see the promised land, but he can't go in. And in verse 14, you just read that God reminded him why. Look with me at verse 14 again. During the strife of the congregation, you rebelled against my command to treat me as holy. Now, it is hard enough when you personally live with your own failures day in and day out, isn't it? It just seems to regurgitate in our mind. The things that we fell short on, we remember them. They come back into our mind at the times we least want to remember them. But in Moses' case, God is reminding him of his failure. Because so significant is his failure, it resulted in huge personal loss here on earth. And, and the punishment seems so very, very bitter. Much more here in Numbers 27 than at first back in Numbers 20 when we were in that. Because back then in number 20, a week ago when we were in there, the land was far off still. There were, there were months ahead of him. And now it's come full face before him. In chapter 20, there was still hope. Maybe God will change his mind. Maybe the Lord will soften towards me. But now the decree is palpable, it's final, it's irrevocable. The exclusion still holds. And we get some insight in Deuteronomy chapter 3. Let me take you there. Verse 23, I also pleaded with the Lord at that time saying, O Lord God, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your strong hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Now, just hold it right there. Just pause for a second. Picture a student in high school who really, really wants some kind of electronic entertainment piece from Best Buy. And they really, really want their dad to take them there and buy it for him. So they're going to begin with the butter up. Dad, you are the greatest dad. I, I, I just love the way that you lead our family. And uh, man, you are phenomenal. This is what's going on here. Watch what Moses just said. Who could be as mighty as you? There's no God as great as you. And then comes the anchor, verse 25. Let me, I pray, cross over and see that fair land that is beyond the Jordan. He's just done the teenager thing with the dad going into Best Buy. You're really great. Here's what I want. Would you give it to me? Let me, I pray, cross over and see that fair land that is beyond the Jordan, that good hill country and Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me on your account. Verse 26, he's laying it right back on the feet of the people of Israel, saying it's your fault. 
The Lord was angry on, with me on your account and, I would, and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough, speak to me no more of this matter. Now, on one hand, you, you, you have God's mercy. God's saying, you know what, Moses, if you climb the mountain, I'm going to let you see the land. In other words, you're going to see what you missed out on, but you're going to get to see it. That would in itself be incredibly hard, knowing that you can't get in. But what Moses doesn't know is it's bigger than Moses. There's two major components going on here, two larger issues at play. I'm going to give you the first one right now, I'll give you the second one in a few minutes. The first thing that's going on is there's massive benefit to you in Moses getting this punishment. There's most massive benefit then and now, which echoes all the way down through the ages to our generation. God's reminder of the rebellion and the subsequent consequence speaks to our generation, it speaks to all future generations, and here's what it speaks of. No human, no human on earth, not even Moses, is immune from the consequences of sin. In other words, what I said to you last week, God will not compromise His holiness for anyone, not even Moses. Even though he pleaded with the Lord to allow him, please just let me step into the land. You've got to let me do that. And God commands Moses, stop. Enough already. Don't bring it up again. I will not hear of it. Now, number two, we'll come back to in just a moment. Let's, let's move forward. What you see next now is absolutely true humility because Moses' response reveals the depth of his character. This is why people consider Moses to be a great leader. Verse 15, then Moses spoke to the Lord saying, May the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who will go out and come in before them and who will lead them out and bring them in so that the congregation of the Lord will not be like sheep which have no shepherd. Now, mind you, Moses has just received God's final answer. No, Moses, you're not going in. And he's told him about his impending death. And now it seems as though the whole nation is going to be left as a sheep without a shepherd. In other words, they're going to be scattered like they have no leader. Now, to someone who has wielded power for 40 years, and in Moses' case, absolute power, it seems impossible humanly to ask for a successor. But what you should be noticing is Moses makes no push whatsoever to get his own son advanced. Nor does he show any signs of jealousy. This is what a true elder statesman looks like. You're looking at great character and great quality, quality of leadership here. So Moses is impressive for this reason. He's not lamenting what he doesn't get. What he begins doing is praying. And I put these four for you on the screen so you see them. They're in your notes also. Here's what you see Moses immediately doing. He immediately goes to prayer, which is total submission to God's will. I want what you want, God. Next, he's acknowledging that God is sovereign. You made all the souls on earth, God. All the spirits of all flesh, you created all of them. You're God over all of them. Number three, he demonstrates genuine concern for the future of the people. And four, 
he pleads for God's choice for the next leader. So he's not seeking his own will, and he's not asking for someone from his own party. He's not saying, you've got to make it a Levite God because he's from the tribe of Levi, because this is not a Republican or a Democrat thing. He's asking for a godly leader, and his priorities are spot on. He wants what God wants. So he's leaving it to the Lord, and his only request is this. Father, I just want someone who's going to keep you right at the very center, and that should be our first priority regardless of the politics. Verse 17 emphasizes that. I, I really want someone who's going to lead them out and bring them in, which is this underlying image of a really good shepherd. And it's also the perfect illustration of someone who has the responsibility of governance. Please, Father, don't let them be led astray. Bring them in. Take them out by good leadership. Don't let them be like sheep which have no shepherd whatsoever. So don't let them be scattered. Don't let them be devoured. Don't let them be lost. New Hope Church, pray that way for the next presidential election. Pray that way for the next leader of your nation. And what you see here is this is the Moses of days gone by. There's no longer dwelling on the anger. He's not dealing with the failure or the resentment. Now he's just got legitimate concern for the next generation. What's life going to be like for them? So how does God respond? Verse 18. So the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him, and have him stand before Eleazar the priest, and before all the congregation, and commission him in their sight. You shall put some of your authority on him, in order that all the congregation of the sons of Israel may obey him. Moreover, he shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of Urim before the Lord. And at his command they shall go out, and at his command they shall come in, both he and the sons of Israel with him, even all the congregation. Let me show you a great quote from Charles Simeon, 1836. He said it this way, this particular one, this kind of leader, that one, none can act for God who do not act from God. You can't act on God's behalf if God hasn't chosen that one. Well, in this case, Joshua is that man. He's one of the two heroes who survived the 40 years in the wilderness. He's one of the two that came out of the darkest day of Israel as a shining example of what good leadership looks like. And he wears a really significant name. He was first known, if you go back far enough in the book of Numbers, you'll find his name was actually Hosea, and Moses changed his name. Moses, in a fatherly way, gave him the name, what we call today, Joshua. But the Hebrews would have pronounced it Yahashua, or over time it became known as Yahshua. Jesus, in the New Testament, is called, among the Hebrew people, Yahshua. Joshua and Jesus same, share the same root of the name, Yahshua. Hosea, his original name, meant salvation. But Joshua means salvation is of Yahweh, or Yahweh saves. Now, Yahshua, this new one that's been chosen, he's got institutional memory. 
There's only two specific individuals that are still alive at that time besides Moses who were adults over the age of 20 when the first generation failed. Joshua Yahashua Ben Nun survived 40 years in the wilderness and he saw the collapse of Pharaoh. He personally saw the military chariots washed into the Red Sea and all of the army of Pharaoh drowned. He stood at Mount Sinai when God showed up in power and thunder and lightning and earthquake. He saw the pillar of fire by day, the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. He saw the manna given to all of the people. And this is the one whom God says, you're going to put your authority on him. Now, conferring command to someone else is accomplished by the laying on of the right hand, which in those days was considered the symbol of authority and power. So Moses doesn't just lay the right hand on him, he puts both hands on him, which is the paramount manner of conferring authority to an individual. So he's laying hands on him in front of all the people, Scripture says, so that no one will question whether or not this is a legitimate transfer of power, and in front of Eleazar the priest. So he's doing it in the presence of the people, under the authority of Eleazar the priest, and he's supposed to give some of his authority to him. And immediately there's a transfer of authority so that there's a smooth transition among the people. Now this is a big moment in our E2E study going forward as we work through the Old Testament. Going forward, the people will no longer be under the authority of someone like a Moses in the same way. Moses got information directly from God and gave it to the people, but now God has put a priestly class in place. So Joshua is going to be a civil and a military leader, but Eleazar is the leader of the people spiritually. So what it was like in the days of Moses is no longer going to be in the days of Joshua. The next generation of people are going to have to rely on the priest, and any issue that's not covered under the law they can go to the priest and he can use these stones. We don't understand how God used them or what they were used for, but the Urim and Thurim, Thuman, the, those things were something very special that God allowed them to use. We don't know how. But here's what I want you to catch. In verse 21, you see this really subtle transitional moment here. Have him stand before Eleazar the priest, and there you find the essential difference between Moses and Joshua and everyone who comes after Moses was above the priest, Joshua will be the civil military leader and subordinate to the high priest, and that affects how the rest of the Bible plays out. Let's go to verse 22. Moses did just as the Lord commanded him, and he took Joshua and set, before him, set him before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation. Then he laid his hands on him and commissioned him just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. This becomes a really beautiful moment, church. Moses' maturity, his spiritual maturity is on full display. He is ready to see others reap where he has sown. He's ready to see a new leader succeed where he has failed. So he places both hands on him and begins commissioning him and praying for him and giving command to him because the ember days of Moses have finally arrived. 120 years on the planet, and he's going to be removed because Moses 
the lawgiver broke the law, and God has called him out on it. I know many of you here know your Bible really, really well, and so if I asked you to give the first and greatest commandment, you could probably give it to me immediately. Let me ask you to tell me who said this when I showed you this on the screen. Verse 37 of Matthew 22. He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend, depend the whole law and the prophets. Who said that in the New Testament? Jesus, that's right. So if you don't know the Bible, what happened is this. Some people came up, challenged Jesus. One leader of the law came up and said, Jesus, teacher, tell us what's the greatest commandment? Jesus answered with exactly what you just saw. First and foremost, now if you go back to the Old Testament and you look at number one of the Ten Commandments, it says, you shall have no other gods before me. That's a match for this. In other words, don't put anything else between me and you. Don't worship anything else. Put me solely at the center of your life. And that's why Jesus says, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, keep me at the center. That's exactly the law that Moses broke. And God called him out on it. So in Moses, we've seen what the law does best. It reveals sin. But we've also seen the weakness of the law. And the weakness of the law is that it demonstrates its inability to do what only Jesus can do. The law cannot save you. Only grace, Jesus, can save. There's no grace in the law. It's just the law. Now, let's bring all three of these strings together so you can see why I said this would be a bow tie. The inheritance, God's promise is on the other side of the Jordan River. Moses is on this high mountain. He's in the east looking across the valley towards the west and he can't get in he can't go to the other side of the Jordan. Moses is not permitted to cross the Jordan and enter the land. He must not, and he cannot cross the river. Now, I told you earlier that there's two major issues at play. Here comes the second one, but let me remind you of the first. There is massive benefit to the punishment. God has just demonstrated that He will not compromise His holiness for anyone, not even for Moses. Here's the second one. Moses is the living embodiment of the Old Testament law. If anyone worked methodically day in and day out to make sure every T was crossed, every I was dotted, that everything of the law was fulfilled, it would be Moses, the lawgiver, yet even the lawgiver broke the law. Even the one who gave the law can't keep the law perfectly. So God has just told the law that it is not possible to enter in any way into the life to come because the law can't save you. By reason of its weakness, it only deals with revealing sin. 
Life with God, future and present life with God is only entered through grace. And Jesus is the embodiment of grace. So check this out. The law can only bring you right to the threshold. And it can say, there it is. But it can't take you in. It can bring you right to the edge. It can reveal your sin. It can show you what holiness looks like. But it cannot bring you holiness. So therefore, you're standing at the edge saying, I want to get in. But I can't get in because there's no grace there. So Moses craves a successor who could do what he could not do. And he asks for one who could truly open up the way, the land of promise. That which Moses could not do, Yahshua, Yahashua could do and will do. Paul wrote about this exact same thing. Look with me at Romans chapter 8, verse 3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. What's the requirement of the law? To be perfect. To be absolutely flawless, that's the requirement of the law. And the law couldn't do that. It could only reveal the weakness. So Moses does die outside the promised land. And in a, a beautiful way, as a tribute to his life, let me show you this little clip here. This section of Scripture is kind of long, but bear with me. Deuteronomy 34, verse 1. Now Moses went up from the plains of Moab to, the Mount, to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pishgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, and all Naphtali, and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, and all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, and the Negev, and the plain and the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. Then the Lord said to him, this is the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants, and I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he, notice that church, it's capitalized, God. He, God, buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor, but no man knows his burial place to this day. Although Moses was 120 years old when he died, his eye was not dim, nor his vigor abated. The book of Jude goes on to say that God protected, preserved Moses' body. Even though Satan wanted it, the angels fought against it, and God preserved and protected that. Now, you just read of the death of Moses, but that is not the last of Moses. He's seen once again. He shows up in the New Testament, again on a mountain. And we see this in Matthew 17, verse 1. Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. And this New Hope Church is the first time Moses has ever been able to set foot in the promised land. 
How amazing. Because the law couldn't get him in. He had to wait for grace to arrive. All the failure of his past, all the shortcomings kept him out. But grace arrives. The law, Moses, the prophets, Elijah, they met with mercy and grace on the mountain that day. And know this, church, it was not to the law Moses, nor was it to the prophets, Elijah, of whom God said, I am well pleased. It was to grace. It was to the Lord Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. Hopefully, he's your Lord. Of him whom he said, this is my son. Listen to him. So for Moses, the wrath was reversed because wrath was swallowed up in mercy when Jesus came on the scene. No wonder they're immediately and intensely talking about his departure because his departure indicates it's going to be finished. You've come and you're going to destroy sin and all the shortcomings of the law and all the wrath of God will be dealt with and your departure is almost here. We can't wait because we get to know what grace really is. That's what grace really is. Grace is greater than all my sin. Grace is absolutely amazing, if you don't know that. They should write a song about it. It's phenomenal. Look into it in Scripture and see that God's grace triumphs over sin because of the one, the one who is perfect, perfectly fulfilled the law. Therefore, if you are in Him, and by Him I mean Jesus, if we are in Him, we also are made perfect in the eyes of God. Therefore, when Jesus said, the least in the kingdom is greater than John, because you have all the pieces of the puzzle. It doesn't mean you're a greater teacher, a greater leader, a greater businessman. It means you're greater in the sense that your position right now in Jesus Christ is superior to those in the Old Testament because they didn't know all the things that you know. And therefore, God says, you better live like it. You've got huge responsibility because you know about the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who makes you perfect in the eyes of God. Amen, church? All right, let's pray together. Father, I thank you for every single soul represented in this auditorium and streaming right now and part of the broadcast and part of iTunes that we get to hear your word and you open up our minds through the power of the Holy Spirit. We give it right back to you, Father, and say thank you for blessing us with understanding these complicated things that once they're sewn together, they don't look so complicated. Thank you, Father, for giving us clarity of thought. We ask for ourselves as we walk out into this week, we don't even know what it holds. Perhaps we're going to encounter something like they did in Maui. Maybe we'll be a church that has to step up and help with a disaster again. In all the ways that we walk before you, in all the ways we encounter people on this planet, whether it be on a school campus, Father, or in the workplace or in our own home, I pray that we would model grace 
the way that Jesus showed us grace appears in truth, that we would be identifiable as your representatives here on earth. God, use us that way to speak boldly of the one who brought us amazing grace, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in His name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope. If we haven't met yet, I'll be down here in the front after the service.